Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are pursuing practical insight about racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry. I'm Corey Leak. And Corey is filling in for Alicia again uh, for the second time. Uh, don't worry, Alicia is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, everybody. Oh it's it's the last time you'll hear me. Yes. <laughs> it's not the last time. <laughs> Anyway, we have we have an exciting show for you today. Uh, we're talking with activist, educator, and blogger Zeli Imani. And um, you know, I have been following Zeli for for a long time, and I wanted to talk with him specifically about a question that I that I'm constantly pondering, and that is, what do Black people need to do in the pursuit of racial justice? What does it look like for us to fight for racial justice? I think, Corey, you understand this. Like, And I didn't know this beforehand. If I knew this beforehand, I would have planned a little bit better. But as a Black man, when you start talking about racism, you're going to attract a lot of white people. Yes. It's just a part of the thing. Like, And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, shout out to all of uh, the white allies and accomplices that are, that are seeking to be anti-racist and to fight for racial justice. But I just didn't realize that it would attract so many white people. And so later on down the line, I started realizing like um, there are, that we have some different questions, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about racism Mm -hmm. and there are actually some ways that I can't help white people. (laughs) Exactly. And there, and there are some ways that white people can't help us. Yes. You know? And um, so that has, that has had me thinking a lot. And we could talk some more about this later because there actually was a moment uh, a couple of years ago where I, I literally, like I sat in my apartment and was like, something has to change. Mm. I, especially because I was focusing a lot on the white opposers at, or I was not focusing on them, but I was, I was giving them a lot of energy. It's hard like, not how to. Can I? Because they're relentless. Yeah, they just keep coming in waves and coming and coming and coming. It's it's hard to just ignore them, for sure. You know what I saw when you said that was that scene in Lord of the Rings where all the, that huge <laughs> army starts coming down over the hill. <laughs> because you attract those kind of white people, too. You in do. Hordes. You absolutely do. In hordes. So, okay, let's get into the interview with Zelly, and then Corey and I will come back and we'll we'll talk some more about this. Without any further ado, here is our conversation with Zelly. No, it doesn't have to be Doesn't have to be this way Doesn't have to be No, it doesn't have to be this way Hey Zelly, how's it going? Yo, it's going great, brother. Yo, it is so good to have you on the show. I'm so honored that you gave us this time, man. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for reaching out and having me. I'm real excited to be on the show today. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am excited to share your brilliance with all of our listeners, and hopefully they'll they'll share it with everyone, you know, because y'all need to be following this guy if you're not on Instagram and Twitter. He's dropping truth every day. Um, so, Zelly, here's an interesting thing. is I think when people look you up online, it's hard to... It's hard to describe you in one word, you know, because you're doing so much work, so many different ways. So I wonder, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Man, that's a great question. Um, I know online, I definitely try to categorize myself as as a brother, as an educator, and as a a writer and activist. But all those things that I kind of like use to describe myself 
in the notebook, I'm just a human being. Mm. And the things that I'm fighting for is to end all these types of oppressions in order to fully be a human being. Mm. Because all these different types of systems of domination that are working to oppress us really limit our capacity to really fully live our, our the lives that we deserve. So the, the fight that I'm fighting is to liberate us all so that we can really fully be human beings. And that's, that's what I really am. And that's what I want to word, be. Word, word. So... I wonder, have you always been politically active or how did you get into doing this kind of work? You know, it's always been like this push and pull thing. Um, my family, particularly my mother and my father, they grew up as black activists. So when they both met in college, they was a part of the black student movement out here in the East Coast. You know, back then in the 70s, when they was taking over Burst Stars office and Burst Stars offices, really fighting the fight trying to get an increase of black student population, an increase of black faculty, pretty much the same things that we still fighting mm-hmm. for today. So that type of activism pretty much trickled down into my household so that when I got into college, I kind of followed that same mm-hmm. path. Wow. And so it's in your blood, kind of. <laughs> it was in my blood. It was annoying growing up as a kid, you know, like, Every day, I'm I'm expecting the toys in my room. It's like books on Black History. I'm like, damn, I want I want a toy. <laughs> no a book. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, but but looking back, it sounds like you're grateful for that experience. Yeah, I really am grateful. You know, because I got the chance to to be knowledgeable about a lot of um, historical figures that my my peers at that time really wasn't you know, knowledgeable on. They just knew about, you know, the Martin Luther Kings and the Rosa Parks, but I was exposed to so, so much more. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Tell me, tell me about the work of Black Youth Collective. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm part of, I founded an organization called the Black Liberation Collective, which is a a network of of college um, based organizations throughout the United States, as well as Canada. And we pretty much emerged in 2015 um, I, I think at that time, again, right, where a lot of college students were actually starting to communicate to one another. Because at that time, what they always do when there's an incident on campus, whether it's like a blackface incident or some other type of racist incident like nooses, the college administration, they always try to say like it's an isolated incident, right? Mm-hmm. But all these college students are saying, wait, this happened on my campus yeah, too. Yeah. This happened on my campus too. And it becomes a conversation. This is not an isolated incident, but something systemic. And in order to fight something systemic, we all have to be fighting it together collectively on our own campuses. Yes. So we was able to build like a strong network and have national data of action where we was able mm-hmm. to help hold rallies, hold sit-ins. Like Princeton had like a sit-in of like multiple days in the president's office. Yale had like sit-ins. All fighting for the same Whoa. radical thing. Like, yo, we still want to increase our black um, students. We still want to increase our black faculty. Yeah. We need more funding for our, our black organization. And if we at here in Howard, right, we should be invested in our local community. You know, like we shouldn't just be getting like tens of thousands of dollars here. We should be able to invest it into this local community as well. So yeah. all these different conversations were happening, especially sure. something right now when we talk about reparations, right? Right. That we started had that conversation about, yo, like black people deserve um, free tuition for college yeah. and um, technical school. Word. And I love that you're talking about organizing because I feel like a lot of people are not taking the possibility of collective action seriously. Mm. And I mean, like you mentioned, like in our tradition as black people, like, 
You know, our ancestors yeah. were organizing. That's how we even have the freedom that we have today. And so sometimes I look at it, I look at it and I wonder, sometimes I feel like we're stuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, so could you talk about the, I mean, first off, I want to know like how, how you see, you know, where we are as black people and, but also the, the importance of organizing. Could you speak to that for a little bit? Yeah. I think it goes back to our earlier conversation about some people only knowing certain names of um, black historical figures, right? Mm-hmm. And that is something that's purposeful. And even the figures that we do know, like a Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, is completely whitewashed. So the only thing we know about Martin Luther King is like the speeches, right? Or, or things like the I Have a Dream yeah. speech and maybe like the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. But we don't know necessarily the organizing that took place behind the scenes to actually get those um, demands met or get those, um, those bills passed. And that's the thing that's really missed because without knowing um, the organizing aspect of a lot of these things, a lot of us think that things just happen automatically or that someone has to be charismatic and a great um, speech giver in order to give us our demands met. But in actuality, it's like the organization of masses of people who actually move the needle of this country. Word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because in these in these times, like when we talk about, you know, anti-racism work and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, how it's white people's job to confront white supremacy. And I agree with that, uh-huh. you know, but sometimes I'm just like, OK, well, what, what do black people need to be doing? You know, what, uh-huh. what do we need to what is our part? Not in necessarily dismantling white supremacy, but in in pursuing black liberation. You know, how do you say that? How do you how would you answer that question? What do we need to do? Right. So we have to um, organize. Right. And organize yeah. in a way that is not just even locally, because obviously local is important. But we also yeah. have to realize that we're just not just black people in Detroit, but we're part of a larger diaspora who right. is oppressed by a system called imperialism or colonialism or capitalism. So it doesn't matter if you're a black person in Detroit, you're still going to be oppressed if you go to North, right? That you're yeah. still going to be oppressed if you go to France or the UK or wherever you set your black foot at, like this system that's working <laughs> to oppress you, right? Word. So one of the things that we're missing from the past, which the Black Panthers did so well, was it was able to have like international solidarity with black people and oppressed people throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the next stages that we have to be really diligent upon is making sure that we're building connections with other oppressed folks from other um, nationalities and as well as from within our own diaspora because mm-hmm. we're just not going to end this system here in Detroit or here in New York. It's a worldwide system, so it needs a worldwide movement. Word. Yes, yes. We need we need to be thinking nationally and globally about national yeah. and global problems, you know? And the thing is, too, unfortunately, I will, I will completely, you know, be frank with you. Yeah. Sometimes that's missing from um, a lot of us American activists mm-hmm. because if you go to uh, the motherland, like, they're paying attention what's going on over here in America, yeah. you know? They know the Trayvon Martins and the Mike Browns and everybody else. Right. Same thing with um, our black folk that's in Europe. They know what's going on here in America, yeah. but we don't necessarily know what's going on o- over there. Yeah. Like, we're so always focused about here in America that we forget that we need to support what's going on over there as well. You know, as you say that, I feel like a lot of us here are so consumed with, you know, addressing whiteness, you know, that Mm -hmm. 
it kind of takes up so much time and energy. You know, like when I when I turn the question on on us sometimes, you know, and I want to yeah. say again, like I I affirm everyone who's like, you know, you know, speaking truth to white people. Like that's I think that's important mm-hmm. work. But I remember turning the question on a group of my friends and saying, okay, what do we need to do? And we were all kind of stumped for a while, man. We just kind of sat there <laughs> for a few minutes. You know? Yeah. And so I noticed I noticed that in your work, you know, I don't think that you're talking to white people. I think that you're talking <laughs> to us, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. I would love for you to talk about that decision and how you keep that focus and and why it's important to you. Yeah, because anti-blackness is a it's a it's a system, right? It's an interlocking system of like policies, practices, beliefs, and behaviors that work to oppress Black people for the benefit of white people. Mm-hmm. So when I first started this work, I started a blog called Black Culture because I really wanted to amplify and celebrate Blackness and give a, a fuller view of what Blackness was. Right? I wanted to capture um, not just the, um, the, the media type of Blackness that's acceptable, but the fuller Blackness so people can have those those real conversations of what blackness means and be able to be um, comfortable in their blackness and unapologetic about their blackness. And that right. meant that I had to have conversations with black people and this work about black people. And my focus has always been about black people and talking to black people, trying to express how they feel in my own writings, as well as express myself as a black person in my writings. So yeah. like you said, I don't always try to convince white people that, you know, racism exists. That's not my, that's not what I'm doing. My, my role is trying to sometimes convince that black people that not only does racism work, but how does it work and how can we um, work to dismantle it? And then sometimes white people just happen to catch on as well. And that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think that black people need to understand about the way that racism works in order to confront it? Right. I think that we have to realize that um, it's a it's a system that's a hierarchy. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is different levels to it and that there's always going to be levels in a hierarchical system of domination. And unfortunately, we've always been sold that, you know, we just pull ourselves by the bootstrap and things will be better Hmm. for us, for black people that that could that would never be the case. Because we'll always, no matter how far we climb, we'll, even if we're on the top, so-called, we'll still be oppressed. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we can be no longer be oppressed is not about how many rungs up the ladder we climb, but us knocking that whole ladder down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're talking, ra- you're talking radical change. We need to yeah, be radical different. Okay. But I think, I think like the boys on the block and everybody in the hood realize that. And that's why we have such a low voter turnout. Because they realize that it doesn't matter who they elect in that seat, the system is still going to be the same. Like it's still going to be poor. It's still going to be drugs. It's still going to be shooting. No matter who is in that seat, whether it's Latina, whether it's a black person, whether it's a white person, maybe the oppression may be a little bit harsher, but things ain't going to be any better for them. So why should they vote? But they don't have the tools in order to um, combat that. You know, they just just give up and do what they do instead of organizing. Hmm. in order to defeat that system. I want to ask you a couple more questions about movement stuff. And then I want to just ask you a couple questions, just like a little bit more personal. So uh, first, like what, what excites you when you look at what's happening as far as the movement for racial justice? 
I think the one of the things that it always excites me is that um, the young people always excite me. Um, mm-hmm. The language that they have, the intellect that they have, even in the high school level, it's just like so amazing. It's something that me and my friends always talk about, like, yo, we did not have that language as like a high school kid, you know? Like we never even thought about doing like a walkout or something yeah. to that extent. Yeah. Out here in New York, um, because of a racist incident, this um, private high school, they actually locked the administration out and did like a sleep-in. Word, yeah. You know? so that they, was in the Bronx, right? Yeah, in the Bronx. So they did like a sleep-in for like two or three days until they had their um, demands all met. And that was some badass shit. I'm like, damn, like, <laughs> like, yo, these kids are bad as hell. And the way they talk about racism and anti-blackness and all this type of language I didn't have as a kid, like, only got that as an adult. I'm like, yo, when these guys, in, in, when these kids grow up, I'm like, yo, they are really going to change the world for us. Yeah. They, they're, they're it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I really love that, too. And especially because these are these are black and brown students, right? Yeah. Yeah, See, I love that. You know, I really (laughs) do because I feel like, you know, my thing and that that excites me, too, is because the thing that I'm out here trying to do is help people understand people power. Right. People have a misunderstanding. They think that the person at the top of this hierarchy is holding all the power. They don't realize Mm -hmm. that it's our consent to their rule that empowers. Right. You know. Right. So like that that mm-hmm. example that you gave, like when when that story went out, I was like, y'all, look, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's dope. Yeah. It was dope as hell. And then I'm like communicating with them and like they had their own rules in the school. Like, yo, you know, they make sure that everything's cleaned up. They make sure that people have, you know, um jobs to clean up and just jobs to communicate with the press. Like they was really organized i'm like wow you know it wasn't like some fun time you know you know crashing up stuff or breaking up stuff in the school like nah it was really principal and dedicated yeah. and determined to um win those demands yeah and i want i wanted to ask you more like what do you think like the world would look like like how what does that radical change need to be you know in order for us to have a truly anti-racist society right I think one of those things that we have to um, think about is um, access to resources. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always talk about is that um, that um, police aren't a um, central pillar to safety. Mm-hmm. It's access to resources. When you think about the, the most safe communities in your in your state or your in your county, um, those safest communities don't have more police officers. They just have better housing. They have better education systems. Mm-hmm. They have better um, jobs. They have better access to healthcare. All these um, different resources, that's what make um, a strong and thriving community, not necessarily police. So how do we get to a point where all communities have access to better re- these better and rich resources and not just a limited few have those that access? So when we talk about battling racism and knowing that racism, a part of racism is denying people access to those resources, then we can start to figure out like what does uh, anti-racist society actually look like and how it actually functions. Mm. So it's not just white and black people hugging each other, is what you're saying. <laughs> right. It's not about white and black people hugging each other. Because honestly, like, it can still be like segregated. Like, if people feel sex, happy that way or safer that way, or if that's how they just organize, mm-hmm. then that's how it is. But as long as people are uh, being able to 
have the same level of access to resources and there's not um, any violence on any communities based on how they, they love or how they look. And then that's the type of society I think we should all you know, be working for. Yeah, word. You know, I, I, I didn't realize we have like kind of a missing link here, right? Like we talked about mm-hmm. Black empowerment and we talked about organizing and what the world should look like, but not necessarily, but not necessarily the connection between those things, right? Like, right. why is how? What's the relationship between organizing and black empowerment to get there? Right. Um, I think that's a crucial thing too. Not just organizing, but how we organize. Because in the in the process of organizing, we're really trying to create the type of world that we want to live in, right? Yeah. So if we are organizing in a way that is homophobic or patriarchal or even racist, then we're not building an anti-racist or anti-phobic or, you know, anti-sexist society, right? right? So even in our organizing, we have to make sure that we are, are abiding to these same principles and values that we want to see in the world that we're, at, we're fighting to create. Mm-hmm. So the type of organizations um, that we're trying to create, like maybe community groups or community town hall meetings, they always have to be um, centered on the most marginalized people. They always have to be anti-racist, um, anti-homophobic, and anti-sexist um, as a core principle. Yeah, and that's how we we're always trying to move on. Even if we're workplace organizing in the workplace, organizing in the community, we always have to think about those particular type of values in our organizing. Word. Otherwise. Word. Otherwise, we'll end up in the same place where it's always going to be a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel exhausted doing this work? Yeah, all the time, man. I always, <laughs> all the time. You have no idea. Like, exhausted <laughs> isn't even the word. Like, like sometimes I get calls, like, at 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, like, hey, Zelly, like, such and such happened. Like, can you help me out? Or, and it gets draining sometimes, but... Uh, yeah. Like this is, the, I guess, the life that I, I chose. So I, I'm committed to um, committed to it and committed to our people in our community. Yeah. How do you how do you keep yourself from, you know, I mean, some people, they, they burn out, they quit, yeah. you know, and worst case, you know, they, they may even take their own lives. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. how do you take care of yourself? Um, one of the things, too, is I have to remember that. Uh, no is a complete sentence mm. and and not, don't say um, maybe when you really mean no yeah. so when people ask you something can you do something you know if you really don't want to do it don't don't be afraid to say no don't say maybe or don't even say yes if you really mean no say no because you know what your capacity is they don't know your capacity right so you have to be able to um, articulate what your capacity is to people and and let them deal with it like if they are upset about it let them be upset because you, you have to take care of yourself, right? Exactly. It's almost like on a, on a, on an airplane, they say, you know, you got to put your mask on first before you put on a mask on anybody else. Whew, yeah. That's a word. <laughs> <laughs> that's a word, bro. I'm so, I'm so happy about this conversation, man. Thank you so much for taking some time. I want to just ask, no I want to leave everybody with one more question. I ask everybody that I interview this question, you yeah. know, like, um, I'm assuming that you still do this work because you feel hopeful in some way. Yeah. And I'm wondering yeah. what what gives you hope? Man, um, I'm a school teacher and um, my, my students give me hope. Mm. Uh, my students give me hope and uh, even their parents give me hope too. 
because um, when I got arrested out here for protesting, mm. even some parents were coming up to me asking me if I was okay and things like that. So mm. I, I sometimes I forget like not only is the world watching, but like um, my community is watching and my community is rooting for me too. And right. that really um, gives me that extra push to keep going. Yeah, that's so awesome. Well, Zelly, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Um, where can people find you, keep in touch with you, fo- follow your work? Yeah, definitely. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is Zelly Imani. Um, you can you know, follow me there. You can hit me up on there and we can always build and connect. Because again, that's that's really important. I'm not one of those high and mighty people that you can't reach out to, you know. I'm, <laughs> but I'm, I'm super busy sometimes, so you know how hard it is, like nail me down. But uh, you know, I'm always down to support people and I'm help people out wherever they are. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. So that hit home for me in so many ways, but but the concept of encouraging black folks to do something about injustice and racism mm-hmm. without centering white people, man, yeah. just, just for all the reasons that you said up top were always been hard for me because coming out of white evangelical spaces, those were my friends. Those were my circle. So everything yes. I talked about, they chimed in on. So then when I started mm-hmm. talking about race. They're also chiming in on that, and and they're they're you know white splaining, and they're like they're they're talking about they're invalidating things because it's not their experience. And so you spend so much time fighting with them or trying to prove to them that you know what you're talking about. And what I heard from you and Zelly was that that is such wasted energy. And I've had to yeah, learn that. It can right? be. And, and mm-hmm. when he starts talking about the, the uh, diaspora, I like, yeah, it's like this giant light bulb went off in my head thinking mm-hmm. about how have people in the past talked to a diaspora and there's Peter and Paul and, and other writers um, in, in, script, the in the Bible who mm-hmm. were writing to Jews who were scattered all over and dealing with oppression and they wrote to them unapologetically. Yeah. They wrote in language that they understood. Yes. They yes. wrote about their history. They wrote about what it meant to be them and, and to, to be empowered. And they wrote about God being for them. And they they didn't, yep. you know, not, they weren't on, there wasn't this like chat back <laughs> feature back then that we have now. <laughs> from, from Romans. Yeah, exactly. Roman, like, Romans couldn't just walk <laughs> up and be like, Paul, you know, actually, <laughs> you know. You know, actually, uh, praying Jesus is not a priority to God. You know, like, like I wonder what kind people, of you know people tell me that. Yeah, yeah, people say that's kind of stuff to be. Yeah. I wonder what kind of person. I mean, seeing what we see about Paul, the Apostle Paul, I wonder what kind of person Paul would have been on Facebook, like or Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> like, how snarky? How much of an uh, yeah. a real asshole would Paul have been to people? The way people talk to to <laughs> you and I. Like on social right. media, I just it's. But I think uh, it's really interesting for you to put this in the context of saying, like, even looking at the Bible as looking at the letters in the Bible as people from a marginalized group 
writing to other marginalized people to encourage them, to keep them strong, to keep them inspired, to let them know that God is on their side. And I remember this was months ago, like we tried to have this conversation, you, me, Grace Sandra, who's also on our team. If y'all, if y'all don't know, um, we used to do these weekly videos on Facebook and Nandi, uh, another part of our team. And remember, we, we said, like, how do we do this without censoring white people? And none of us knew how to answer that question at the time. <laughs> we didn't know. You remember well, that? I remember we, that we whole, no we had a whole conversation, conversation about it where we were, the, the subject was not centering whiteness. And I promise it felt yeah. like we spent 30 minutes <laughs> talking about white people. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we, we ended up talking about white people anyway, because when we started talking about um, what do we need and what do we need to do, we didn't know how to talk about it without talking about white people. And I have a friend, she's a, she's a psychologist, uh, African-centered psychologist, and we're going to have her on the show eventually, Dr. Bernal Anderson. And she said, you know, white people and black people are trauma bonded in America. Wow. And so, you know, it takes a lot of work for us to realize that, you know, even for us, it's not all about white people. And not all about what white people are doing. And I encountered that a lot. Mm. You know, okay, example. Uh, you, we've been talking about the three and a half percent rule a lot with Hope and Hard Pills. We only need that uh, studies have shown that no regime has been able to withstand the, sustain, the sustained resistance of three and a half percent of the population. That's amazing. When we talk about black liberation in America, we're always saying we don't have enough people. But black people make up 13% of the American population. Yeah. If we only need maybe three and a half percent, right? Because we can't say that that's the magic number for every single conflict. It depends. But we know that at least three and a half percent, we have, we have well over. <laughs> we have plenty. Yeah. We have, we have plenty, yeah. right? Now, everyone's not going to be a part, but we know that we only need a minority of the whole, whole population. We also only need a minority. Yes. <laughs> Of our own population, exactly. right? To do it. and But when I talk about this, or I, I mentioned it the other day, I had an, a, another good friend, a black man, saying, well, they don't want us to do this, and they don't want us to do that, and they're not going to do this, and they're not going to do that. I'm like, we are not talking about them. Right. <laughs> but it's so hard not to, man. It is just because that trauma bonding is so real that, like, I mean, how does, you know, how does an abuser talk about their abuse without talking about you know I'm, I'm sorry how does the abused talk about their abuse without talking about the abuser and it's just it's a it's almost it's like it's always they're always there i just think mm-hmm. i think you're right in the idea that they don't need to be centered but there's just no way to have the conversation without there being right. a conversation also about white but people, or with white people included. how does the abused talk about their healing without centering their abuser mm. you yeah know what i mean like, you can't talk about the abuse without talking about the abuser. Abuse is a verb. Somebody has to have done it, right? <laughs> but to talk about, <laughs> but to talk about what you need to do so that you can be healthy, you're gonna have to talk about them some. But it it becomes less about trying to convince them of something. Like you're not trying to convince them of no, something, right? right? Exactly. Like you're trying to break free of you know, the mess that they have introduced to your life and the the harm that they've caused to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Zelly also talked about the allies, but in a way, not just 
in like white allies ship. He actually talked about allies with other oppressed or marginalized people groups. And I thought that yes. was really interesting as well, because when you talk about needing 3%, um, you know, it's not even just that we just need 3% of black folks. It's like we just need 3% of marginalized people, people who understand what it is to be oppressed. Now, oppression is not mm-hmm. always the same, but the language is the same. And it's the reason why when you get into this work that you find yourself with more uh, attachments to um, to women, to people from the LBGTQ mm-hmm. community, because mm-hmm. all of those groups know what it is to be othered and to be pushed aside and to be right. you know marginalized and de- denied rights. So there's a common language that we all have. Yeah, if, at least to an extent, right? right. Like we, we do understand oppression to an extent. Um, now we need we need all groups to understand anti-blackness so that they're not just <laughs> right. like, hey, hey, it's all the same. We're the same, you know. <laughs> um, also, also, so it's not even just so that you know we don't just say we're the same. It's also so that people understand how even among marginalized groups we can participate in the same kinds of oppressions that have been inflicted upon yeah. us. You know, we all have that work to do. But I do really appreciate. I think that that question came out of my question about coalition building because that had been. And it still is like it is a question for me about building coalitions. Mm -hmm. At the time when Zelly and I had that conversation, I was like, I just wasn't sure if black people and white people could really work together in a meaningful way for racial justice because of the fact that historically, you know, even white allies have come into movements for black freedom without confronting their own anti-blackness and then caused more trouble. Like they actually inflict the same issues in the white in the black freedom yeah. movement because they're not being self-aware and self-reflective um i've backed up a little bit off of that because first off we we need to ask even if coalitions can be built between certain groups of black right. people because you know we have issues of you know black people with a superiority complex because they're middle class and they're not mm-hmm. poor we have black people with a superiority complex because they're straight um, we have black people with a superior, superiority complex because they're men. Yeah. You yeah. know, exactly. Exactly. Like, you got like black men who feel like the thing that will save black people is patriarchy. For, right. <laughs> like, we do. Getting back to our place where black men were men. You know. Yeah. For sure. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they're like, you know what the problem is, is that, you know, all these all these women are being feminists and they think that they're actually human beings, just like the rest of us black men. How <laughs> dare they like, think they're human beings? Dude. Hey, bro. Yeah. Like that. I don't think you're talking well, about freedom. Well, dude, and that is that is what is hard sometimes is that, you know, we always say this black people are not a monolith, but they're being yes. so many black folks and ways of thinking and ways of being black in America that go all the way to um, your Candace Owens of the world, who is a black woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then you've mm-hmm. got a, probably the other end of the spectrum where you and I tend to lean more, or your Bree Newsom's and, and Angela Rise, those, those are all black women. And Mm-hmm. It's there. They could not be more different, and so the frustrating right. part for me is the Candace Owens end of the spectrum, because 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> like, like I just, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. And I want, because yeah. naturally, honestly, as a human, I want to hate them because there's, I feel like they're so detrimental to our forward movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if I zoom out of that and I think about it objectively, they probably believe that they're doing good for the culture. And that is, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a challenge for me. It's like, and then there's also, like you said, black folks that like will say the most ignorant, uninformed, un- non-thought out things about women, about gays, about you name it. And you're like, yeah, that's not helping us either. Yeah. I mean, to your point about, you know, what do you do with black people who are participants in white supremacy? And I think you're being really generous, honestly, to to people like Candace Owen, because I don't know that. I don't know that all black people that do that actually um, are trying to better the lives. Of you know, black I'm trying. I'm trying not to hate um, her, man. <laughs> I'm trying. You know, <laughs> I, I don't I'm not saying that she doesn't. I don't know her, you know, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that a lot of black people that do that are actually trying to better the lives of yeah. black people. Um, there, you know, we talk about the the linked fate um, idea in black mm. communities where there are some black people who understand our they un, there's there's some black people that understand our lives as being interconnected as black people. So we're all going to be affected. And there's some black people who are really, at least they hope to, to rise above that, right. Or to live outside of that or to disprove that in some way. And so I, I do think that there are some black people who they're out for themselves and they think that they think that they can just navigate the system. You know, they can, might be able to exploit it or take advantage of it. And they're not really thinking about the rest of black people because at the end of the day, Speaking truth to power is good, but in itself, it will not bring about the changes that we need. We need a revolution. And like, I've shied away from saying that because it feels grandiose, Right, right. right? But when we talk about the kind of changes that we need in the world, we need to stop an existential crisis uh, or at least at least avoid the worst case scenario for for all of the species yes. that live on this planet we need to rethink the way that we eat the way that our economic system is set up the way that we handle criminal justice all these things we're not talking about small reforms we're talking about finding a new way to live on this planet at the end of the day, there is no amount of tweeting that is going to do that. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Like, and and so I see that sometimes the temptation is for us to engage in certain behaviors um, and certain activities and to kind of be self-righteous about it mm-hmm. sometimes, to kind of be uh, nasty about it sometimes. And... And we justify it by saying, well, I'm right. I'm correct. And you might be correct, but are you wielding power to actually change the situation? That's tough, man. You can be correct and kids still be locked up in cages. You can be correct and, and we keep pumping carbon into the atmosphere. You can be correct and we keep incarcerating Black people at a disproportionate rate to their white counterparts. 
And you can be yeah. right on Twitter all day. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I get, I, and it, I, I'll just say it this way, and I, you know, it's my opinion that some of the way of thinking about what you have to do just to get by feels antiquated to me. But I do agree with the idea that we need all kinds. We need both. We need both the protesters and the strategists. We For need sure. the we need the street preachers. Um, we need we need the the wagon with the rock in it with the boulder mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. and we also need um, people who are um, dealing with legislation at, with their local government and state government. Absolutely. Um, so I, I I think we need all of it, and I think. One of the things that, that winds up happening that really gets disheartening, especially when in, in light of that we need a you know three percent of the population or whatever to 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 move us forward. One of the things that gets frustrating in that is these two ethics oftentimes tend to throw rocks at one another mm-hmm. and go, "You should do it this way because this is the way change happens." And no, you shouldn't because that's never been the case. And Mark, Dr. King did this. But Dr. King also did this, and you have this back and forth tug of war, even with our with our heroes. Mm-hmm. Like Dr. King could be dragged into an ethic of responsibility or ultimate ends, depending on how you're looking at his life, and and you can discredit the ways that he did the opposite. And so, yeah. I think it's important that we recognize that that all of those things are needed. We just need to to really have people who are understand nuance enough to have these kind of conversations that lead to us saying, okay, I see what you're doing and I see what you're doing and let's put this thing together and do this thing. And that's a step forward. Well, I think that the, the problem in joining some of these, okay, I, first off, let me say, yes, we need a lot of different people who are taking a lot of different stances and a different and different types of actions to be working together. You know, like Eric McBay talks about how social movements are an ecosystem you know, uh, and huh. in an ecosystem, you got a lot of different kinds of organisms, you know, and and exactly what you're saying. You got you got a lion yelling at a flamingo for not being a lion. You know what I mean? Like flamingos like you try to change the world. Where your claws at? You ain't even got no mane. Let me hear you roar, flamingo. You know, pink, pink's not a revolutionary color. What's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> you know? can't even roar. Flamingo, like you can't even fly. <laughs> you, 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 I can get somewhere fat, further and faster than you can. You know, so I mean that that is a huge problem. I think, man, that is so. As to me, is is one of the takeaways for me that I think is is really important to for me anyway. Is just to say, what can I be engaged in locally um, that can help move this forward? And even if I'm really committed to the work. Is am I do I live somewhere where my local effort doesn't even really mean anything? Should I move somewhere else? Should I move my locale so that mm. I can be engaged in work that's really meaningful to me? I love that uh to the question, like what what do black people need to do? I mean, there are many things that black people can do that are legitimate. And I I do I do feel like um first and foremost, black people need to survive and do what brings them joy because mm, yeah. you can't just live your entire life fighting white supremacy. No way. Um but we also do need to fight. And I love that Zelly talks about organizing and the importance of organizing for our own freedom. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. As always, we love having these conversations and we're so glad that you're a part. Thank you to our wonderful 
patrons on Patreon who helped to make this show possible. And shout out to our editor and producer, Ross Montgomery. You'll hear from him in a second to tell you how you can become a patron if you want to get the uncut versions of these episodes and if you want to get them early. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace. Oh, you know.